This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by 2022. Did you love 2021 and wish it could go on even longer? Try 2022 today. Welcome to episode 69 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about rubber, a product that is somehow the start and end to every person's life. Think about it. Your life starts with a contraceptive failing, and it ends with your car tire or bungee cord or clumsy proctologist with rubber gloves failing. Rubber's really the circle of life. In the last two decades, demand for natural rubber has been growing at a rate of 5% per year. Now, rubber isn't any sort of environmental disaster, but rubber does affect the climate, and the climate affects rubber. There's certainly quite a few challenges for rubber farmers to deal with. But these farmers are already on the struggle bus because the price of rubber is really, really volatile, which has created a bizarre global rubber market riddled with national security concerns, illegal land grabs from indigenous communities in the tropics, and even an international government-sanctioned rubber cartel. Watch out, narcos. The rubber industry might just top you. We're going to dive into the environmental and economic issues with rubber today and consider where we might improve in the future. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. If you want to take two minutes to help out the Sweaty Penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show. Joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. Let's start with some Rubber 101. Our primary use of rubber is for tires on cars, bikes, airplanes, extremely unsafe and not fun at all looking tire swings, etc. But rubber has a wide variety of uses, ranging from clothing to dishwasher gloves to shoes to mattresses to earplugs to basketballs to rubber bands to pencil erasers to many medical uses. Rubber is in so many things. The only things it's not in are rubber ducks, which are made of plastic, and Pizza Hut pizzas, which are made of oil, pepperoni grease, and deep, deep regret. Rubber can be obtained either naturally or synthetically. Synthetic rubber is made by refining oil into something called naphtha, combining it with natural gas to produce a polymer, and then vulcanizing that into rubber. And if you don't know what any of that means, don't worry, neither do I. I can't even tell you what a Volkswagen Beetle looks like. And trust me, I've been punched a lot of times because of it. We're going to talk mostly about natural rubber today, not because it's natural, but because in many cases, it's just the better product. The fact that synthetic rubber exists, but natural rubber remains in high demand, says it all. Airplane tires, for example, have to be natural rubber. So the important takeaway from synthetic rubber is that it's made from oil, and it's often considered inferior. 
Natural rubber, on the other hand, comes from trees. There's a number of plant species rubber can come from, but we generally obtain rubber from the aptly named rubber tree. The rubber tree is native to the Amazon basin, but interestingly, the vast majority of our rubber is cultivated in Southeast Asia, 89 to 90% of it depending on what source you look at. The rest comes from other tropical climates in Africa and Latin America. Now, these trees don't just grow monster truck tires and rubber bands, as awesome as that would be. The rubber actually comes from the rubber tree sap. It's sort of like maple syrup, minus the being excellent on pancakes part. Farmers tap the tree. There's a white, milky-looking substance that comes out containing latex, and that goes through a whole long process to be turned into the rubber products we know and love. That doesn't happen overnight, though. Listen to this piece of advice from Hevia Connect to natural rubber smallholder farmers. For trees to be ready for tapping, they must have a circumference of 45 centimeter or more and a bark thickness of seven to eight millimeter. A circumference of 45 centimeters or more. Size matters when it comes to rubber. If you remember back to your early biology classes or the nature-obsessed six-year-old cousin you had growing up, you might recall that the thicker trees, the trees with a larger diameter, are the older trees. So to get to a circumference of 45 centimeters, as this video recommends, which would be a diameter of around 14 centimeters if we do a little math, we need the tree to age a bit. Not an absurd amount, but around four to seven years. As we're going to explore, that gets challenging. That's where the rubber meets the road. If suddenly people are buying cars and demand for rubber goes up, it would take four to seven years to grow the rubber to make the tires. So it creates a really wacky market. We'll dive into the effects of this in a bit, but you can see how this 45 centimeter circumference guideline could turn into a messy situation. Let's set that aside for a moment, though, and talk about how natural rubber affects the environment. Obviously, growing trees sounds like it would be fantastic, like Mrs. Wiggins and the whole Lorax gang would run out and burst into song. There's also the benefit of making a product with something other than oil and natural gas, which require plenty of their own environmental destruction to obtain. But the natural rubber industry, as it stands today, has some drawbacks too. First off, there's a decent number of rubber tree monocultures, or plantations where rubber trees are the only plant grown. It's not the most common method. 85% of global rubber is actually grown on smallholder farms, according to Partnerships for Forests, and these farms often integrate other plants. But rubber monocultures are rapidly becoming more prevalent. It's like NFTs, or Google searches for what does NFT stand for. As we've covered in corn, tea, and plenty other episodes, that presents issues. Monocultures can degrade soil, they can reduce biodiversity, they can require nitrogen fertilizers to keep healthy, which emit harmful greenhouse gases and pollutants, and they are very prone to pests. If a pest likes rubber trees, they will flock to a rubber monoculture in a way they never would if there were other, less savory plants in the system. 
I know what you're thinking. Why eat rubber trees when you can eat literally any other plant that's maybe even flavored? But shockingly, there are a lot of pests that just have terrible taste in plants and love them some rubber trees. Hey, at least it's not Fiber One trees. To control pests, farmers often resort to chemical pesticides. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a bad thing, depending on what pesticide they're using. But especially if they have to jack up the quantity of pesticides because of monocultures, that can create problems. It will certainly cost the farms a lot of money. It will increase the chance that the pests will genetically mutate and start to resist the pesticides, which is a problem that could then spread to the smallholder farms. And, depending on what and how much is used, it could lead to adverse health effects. Pesticides, fertilizers, and the rubber itself can also leach into nearby waterways. According to Mighty Earth, community members near a rubber plantation in Cameroon believe this pollution from the plantation is responsible for numerous instances of water-related illnesses and disease, including stomach aches, diarrhea, and even several deaths. But the more high-profile rubber issue seems to be deforestation, cutting down old trees just to grow rubber-producing trees. Because ageism, right? It's true, though. Clearing forests releases the carbon previously in those old trees, which contributes to climate change. And even though the rubber trees will ultimately suck some of that carbon back up, it certainly wouldn't cancel out. It's like walking home from the Cheesecake Factory and saying you burned off the calories. It takes decades, centuries even, for trees to build up their carbon stores. When forests are slashed and burned, there can also be severe air pollution. And in tropical climates like Southeast Asia, we're also looking at biodiversity loss. Rubber has contributed to the loss of endangered species like tigers, gibbons, orangutans, and Asian elephants. It's contributed to the loss of pollinators such as birds and bats. And it's contributed to the loss of a lesser-known species called the carabid beetle, which I'll let Rothamsted Research's Dr. Kelly Jowett tell you about. Carabids are predatory beetles that can be found in crop areas eating major crop and livestock pests such as slugs, snails, aphids, pest bugs, grubs and flies. Some species even eat weed seeds, removing competition with the crop. So we definitely want them in our crops and pastures. I know a predatory beetle sounds terrifying, and I assume it will also punch me or eat me whenever a Volkswagen Beetle drives by, but Dr. Jowett argues that because carabids feast on pests, we want them in our crops and pastures. If we jump back to what we were just talking about, rubber trees are already extra prone to pest problems because of monocultures. So if you had these carabids in the ecosystem, that could help with the pests. But a study in conservation letters found carabid beetle populations could drop by as much as 76% when forests are converted to rubber plantations. That means not only could rubber farmers have more pests, but they could also have a much tougher time controlling them. Because of that, I have to feel like Dr. Jowett's support for carabids would hold true, especially in the context of rubber. So that's how rubber affects the environment. How does climate change in turn affect rubber? Well, it battles back pretty hard. 
it's no Jake Paul on pay-per-view. We don't quite know how temperature rise will affect rubber trees, because we really only grow them in these tropical climates. We'll have to wait and see what happens, but I know scientists are hypothesizing about potential impacts on photosynthesis, water regulation, growth, yield, etc. What we can say about rubber and climate change is that one, rubber trees can sustain damage from climate-induced disasters such as typhoons, and two, Rubber trees need just the right amount of rain. Too little rain and the supply of latex starts to dry up and farmers can't tap as much. Too much rain and we get even more disease issues and farmers can't tap as much. One fungus that often thrives in this condition is called Phytophthora. According to Oregon State University's Dr. Jennifer Park, Phytophthora requires a lot of water. Under high moisture conditions, and favorable temperatures, these survival spores give rise to sporangia. The sporangia release those spores, which require at least a film of water in order to swim. And these zoospores are attracted to, to plant roots, or um, if they're on the leaves, they might be able to orient better to sites on the leaves, um, which are, are good, suitable sites for infection. Now, I'm no fungus expert. I can't tell you what sporangia and zoospores are, and unlike my lack of knowledge about polymers and vulcanizing, I'm probably not going to face an angry mob of car lovers for admitting that. But taking Dr. Park's word in the most basic sense, we see that these Phytophthora fungi need water. It's how they successfully infect a plant. So in the case of rubber trees, when there's more floods or more heavy rains, that opens up a lot more opportunity for Phytophthora to infect the rubber tree and decimate rubber harvests. So when you combine Dr. Park's research with the increase in excess water caused by climate change, you can see how Phytophthora could become more of a problem. And Phytophthora is far from the only disease issue facing rubber. Others, such as leaf diseases and white root disease, can and do reduce rubber yields all the time. Rubber trees get sick so much, they carry Dayquil and Benadryl in their purses. But as much as climate change and disease can be their own issues, you can also see from an example like Phytophthora how they can exacerbate one another. Now, farmers can produce rubber sustainably. And the fact that smallholder rubber farmers are usually integrating other crops puts them a big step ahead of the monocultures in that regard. Unfortunately, they also face a very difficult economic situation. Compared to coffee, tea, bananas, and other crops, rubber is technically more profitable. But like Green Day, even if the potential is there, rubber markets are wildly inconsistent. Why is that? Well, all the climate and disease stuff we just talked about doesn't help. But beyond that, remember how it takes four to seven years to grow a rubber tree? Economics, as I'm sure many of you know, is about supply and demand. As more people want a product, more suppliers enter the market. As less people want it, suppliers leave. As no one wants it, Suppliers shut down until everyone on Twitter is like, no Twinkies, we do love you, give us another chance, and then they do, and then everyone goes back to not wanting them again. 
but that quickly falls apart when you have to sit and wait half a decade for a tree to grow. As the director of the Global Platform for Sustainable Natural Rubber, Stefano Savi, describes. So basically, the prices are low, right? What happens is that people don't plant because it seems that there's no business case for rubber. At a certain point, demand keeps increasing up to a point where prices start picking up and people start planting rubber a lot. But that rubber doesn't come into fruition until four to seven years after that. And when it comes into the market, then you have a slump in prices. And that right there is the key dilemma that makes it so difficult for farmers to rely on rubber for steady income. Sure, every crop has volatility. We talk about it all the time on this podcast. But a situation like this, it's similar to vanilla if you remember that episode. This is different because it's not just a case of climate change toying around with the market. This is an inherent issue that Stefano identified that can't be diminished. We can't grow rubber faster whenever a bunch of kids decide they want silly bands. And that may be for the best. We maybe shouldn't endanger tigers just to grow rubber and fashion it vaguely into the shape of a tiger. Actually, silly bands are made of synthetic rubber, so bad example, but you get the point. If we need more rubber, we can't quickly get it. And by the time we do get it, we don't need it anymore. But speaking of synthetic rubber... That throws another wrench into this equation. It's not immediately clear who's rubber and who's glue. If you'll remember, synthetic rubber is made from oil. And you know what else has volatile prices? Oil. This gets into the economics concept of substitute goods. Natural rubber and synthetic rubber are, for better or worse, substitutable. And I don't mean substituting your beloved fourth grade teacher with a sub who turns on a movie, reads the newspaper, and insists you say, may I use the bathroom. I mean they're actually substitutable. That means if oil prices are low, synthetic rubber prices then are low, that means more people want to buy synthetic and fewer want to buy natural, and that would drop the price of natural. If oil prices are high, the reverse would happen. That means natural rubber not only has to deal with its own volatility, but it has to deal with oil's volatility too. How do you control this volatility? On The Sweaty Penguin, we've sort of discussed two schools of thought. One is called futures contracts. We've talked about them in other episodes, so I won't rehash it. They exist for rubber and their success is questionable. The other is a straight up cartel. Not an illegal one, as fun as that would be, but a government-sanctioned one that attempts to manage the entire supply of the industry and keep things stable. In our maple syrup episode, I talked at length about the Canadian maple syrup cartel, which, by the way, just released half of Canada's International Strategic Reserve of maple syrup due to shortages this winter, so... Yikes. Rubber also has a cartel. It's called the Tripartite Rubber Council, and it's run by three countries, Indonesia, Malaysia, and Thailand. There's not a lot of literature out there on the Tripartite Rubber Council from what I could find, but I did get the sense that they haven't been too effective, and this isn't necessarily their fault. They've tried to drop the hammer and control rubber supply coming out of their three countries, but they only contribute about 63% of the natural rubber industry. 
We can debate their influence domestically, I don't know enough to say, but they just can't have a big enough impact abroad. In fact, I don't even know how to feel about them limiting rubber out of their countries, because at the same time as that's happening, we're seeing deforestation for rubber, and we're seeing illegal stealing of indigenous people's land in countries like Laos and Cambodia, driven by what will ultimately be industrial rubber monocultures. So while in theory, controlling supply would stabilize prices, they don't have a big enough share of the industry to actually control it. In fact, their share of the market may even be slipping. So this market, where supply and demand are not driving prices, has not fared well for farmers. In Thailand, for example, rubber farmers get by on as little as $6 per day, which is below Thailand's minimum wage. Many countries have forced labor and forced child labor issues on rubber plantations, and there have even been reports of workers taking meth due to the pressures to harvest at faster and faster speeds, if that gives you any indication. It looks to be more Breaking Bad than it is El Chapo. Not that either is anything we want. Now you might be wondering why, even though we use rubber every day, these issues matter to us all the way across the world. I think a lot of this does matter globally, actually. But think about this from the narrow perspective of the United States. We don't produce natural rubber here. We import it all. It's not like we're about to start a war with every tropical country that makes rubber anytime soon, unless they all randomly call Dolly Parton lame, but we know that would just never happen. But a lot of people still see that as a concern, when you rely too heavily on another country for a good. One could argue they're going to fill their own needs before selling around the world. Given that rubber is so essential for any vehicle, obviously anything the military wants to do, being so heavily reliant on imports can be a national security concern. Is it top of the list? Maybe not. But it's good to be aware of. So where do we go from here? How does rubber bounce back? First off, researchers are developing alternative sources of natural rubber. Dandelions, for example, can produce rubber. From the national security perspective, a lot of people like the idea of getting a big dandelion rubber industry going in the United States. It would provide jobs, it would reduce dependency on imports from other countries on rubber, and there would just be a ton of dandelions, which I feel the world needs right now. Why not act like we're living in some noir romantic drama? But according to Ohio State University's Dr. Katrina Cornish, who's actually been working to promote a domestic rubber industry, actually producing enough rubber from dandelions to make a dent in the global market is a major hurdle. Now, however, if you think about tires, this is 70% of the natural rubber supply. We can't make tires from 10 acres, you know, 100 acres or one hydroponic farm. So we must have a lot more farms and a lot more processing plants before we can make that type of product. So a great deal is involved with scaling, scaling up from the original idea. Even to one of the most vocal proponents of dandelion rubber, scaling the idea seems difficult. You need a whole bunch of dandelion farms. You need processing plants, all this infrastructure. And in the early going, that's expensive to set up. 
So if, like Dr. Cornish is saying, you can't make tires with the rubber out of a small farm, tires being the most widely used rubber product by far, then you've got an issue. Saying a great deal is involved may be an understatement because if this is the situation as it stands now, there's a possibility that dandelion rubber can't scale. At least not without major investment. If the United States felt it was in their strategic interest to develop this industry, then it could consider taking on this project themselves. But it's worth having the discussion of whether or not we should give dandelion rubber the rubber stamp. See, I spread out the puns today so you won't hate me. We can also improve on the natural rubber that already exists. Largely, it's a question of efficiency. Are we tapping the right amount, knowing how climate change affects yields? Are we integrating rubber with other plants to avoid soil and pest issues? Are we using our land well, when one country is artificially lowering supply and another is illegally stealing land from indigenous communities? If some of these areas can improve, you can make the case that natural rubber supply can grow without clearing new forests for rubber. Certainly, enforcing a lot of that is challenging when rubber is an international market. It's hard to get everyone on the same page about anything other than that hyenas are jerks, the Cowboys will lose round one in the playoffs, and Jack could have fit on the floating door in Titanic. But continuing to have discussions between all the countries, not just three of them, could certainly lead to ways to promote these strategies. Consuming countries like the United States can also apply pressure in a number of ways by dictating what they are and aren't willing to purchase. Some researchers like the idea of eco-certification in the rubber industry, which could push things in the right direction. But since we as consumers aren't buying slabs of rubber directly, people would actually need to signal to the companies that do buy rubber that they want it to be certified and would pay for that which is a very tall task if you ask me. Not inconceivable, there are already some companies moving in this direction, but it's not as easy as some other agricultural products. But issues like deforestation and child labor and indigenous land stealing are also in part driven by the price volatility of rubber. And that's a tough issue. Integrating other plants does provide a big help. If farmers can live off the income from the other plants and see rubber as a fluctuating bonus or something, as opposed to now where smallholder rubber farmers still, on average, get a sizable chunk of their income from their rubber. Economically, all I'll say is from an outsider's perspective just researching this, it doesn't seem like we've committed to a strategy to handle it. It's like having a stockpile of wheat and ore in Catan, but trying to go for the longest road. We have futures contracts, and we have a cartel, and a not very powerful one at that. I'd be curious if it would help to just pick one of these two approaches, involve the farmers as much as possible in the process, and stick to it. That's no guarantee of success. Both futures contracts and cartels have failed to work in other agricultural sectors plenty of times. But if researchers did some analysis on what approach could be successful, and then world leaders were able to talk about it and agree on a unified approach rather than the mess we have right now, I feel like there would be a bit more promise. I know that was a lot of issues crammed into one episode, and it's really overwhelming to think about trying to tackle them all. 
but they also all tie together very neatly. And I think there's room for solutions that can kind of tackle everything, which makes me optimistic. If this issue gets attention and awareness, we could preserve our rubber supply, improve the livelihoods of smallholder farmers, and make sure that the only beetle we lose is the Volkswagen Beetle. Seriously, I don't want to get punched again. having your optimism ruined? If so, 2022 is for you. When people said in 2020 that 2021 would be a better year, boy, were they wrong. But luckily, we can guarantee that 2022 will be just as bad. The pandemic's still here, Uber Eats still charges like $10 for delivery, and Colorado somehow had the most destructive wildfire in state history in the winter. What? How do you do it, 2022? 2022. Hey, February 22nd, 2022 is a Tuesday, so that's something, right? The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Miles Kenny Lazar, an assistant professor of geography at the National University of Singapore. Dr. Kenny Lazar, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So correct me if I'm wrong, but reading your bios, I believe even though you're teaching in Singapore, you're originally from the United States. So what piqued your interest about the geographies and ecologies in Southeast Asia? How did you end up in a whole other part of the world? That's right. Yeah, I'm originally from Maine. Um, I did my undergrad at the University of Miami. Uh, and actually, it was all through study abroad programs. I did a program in Vietnam for a summer and a semester in Hong Kong. Um, and there I got connected to a professor who was doing research on um, upland environmental issues in northern Laos, um, which included some rubber plantations. Um, and so then he connected me to that topic. And I just became fascinated by it and, and all the changes there. I also have always had an interest in uh, environmental and land issues more globally. Um, so that connected to, to my kind of broader um, academic interests. It really surprised me to learn that such a large percentage of the world's natural rubber is grown in Southeast Asia, really one relatively small region of the world. So what led rubber to become so concentrated in this one area? Rubber is actually indigenous to the Americas, particularly Central America, and it was used by indigenous peoples for a variety of different uses, such as to coat their clothing to protect against the rain um, or to make uh, balls or uh, games. And then it uh, eventually became a pretty large uh, industry in Brazil and uh, was very profitable there for many years. But there's quite an interesting story about it. And actually, there's, there's a great book, actually, this book, The Thief at the End of the World, which is about a uh, British guy, Henry Wickham, who stole 70,000 rubber seeds or smuggled them out of Brazil and brought them to the uh, Kew Botanical Gardens in uh, England. Um, and then they were distributed across the colonial world by the British to uh, different botanical gardens, including in Singapore. And basically they uh, found more efficient ways of growing rubber 
um, and started planting monocultures that were uh, much more productive and efficient across um, what was then Malaya, the uh, Dutch East Indies, which is now Indonesia, and Ceylon, which is now uh, Sri Lanka and other, other places of the colonial world. And it became so efficient and productive that it crashed the prices and the industry in, in Brazil, which was, wasn't as efficient, basically kind of was decimated. Rubber and climate change have a really complex relationship. Rubber is both threatened by climate change and the industry is responsible for a lot of deforestation to create these monocultures, which contributes to climate change. So does climate change come up in your research? How do these climate concerns play into the many issues you've examined facing rubber? That's a good question. Um, to be honest, climate change hasn't been a big part of my research. Um, and I think there needs to be a lot more work done on that. It certainly is a threat to rubber production. There needs to be more research and knowledge about what, what those threats would be and, and how serious they would be. It's not well known like um, at, at what kind of temperatures and what conditions rubber can continue to persist, but it would certainly be threatened by higher temperatures and droughts, um, especially because rubber uses quite a lot of uh, water. It may mean that the regions where rubber is grown also changes. Um, it could be more suitable at higher latitudes, for example. But it's, it's a serious issue and, and one that definitely needs to be studied further. And then on the flip side of that, there's the deforestation impacts, which are especially concerning to see a lot of it coming at the expense of indigenous communities in these Southeast Asian countries. So could you tell us a little bit about your experience studying the contentious land situations in this region and the impacts that deforestation by rubber has had on them? You know, one thing that is, is often remarked about rubber is that it's mostly grown by smallholders, um, around 85%, which is true. But that doesn't mean that they're the only players in the picture. And actually, of the, you know, the remaining percentage, there are some very large plantations that, um, as rubber has expanded, especially in mainland Southeast Asia, into Laos, parts of Myanmar and Cambodia, uh, northeastern Thailand, in a lot of cases, the governments of these countries have given out large land concessions to rubber companies um, to establish large plantations that are on lands that have been customarily used by indigenous peoples, or in some countries they're referred to as ethnic minorities. And that has led to the displacement or dispossession of their lands um, and conflicts over it. Um, and that's gotten some companies into trouble as well, including in Cambodia, there have been some cases raised, legal cases raised against uh, Vietnamese rubber companies. So yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that's really important to consider. Just because smallholders are um, a majority of, of the industry doesn't mean the industry doesn't have these other problematic aspects. And that, that's really important to, to take into account. I think also, you know, in a lot of regions, with even when it comes to smallholder crops, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're absent of social problems. And smallholders can also be people who are expanding into the lands of other groups of people whether it's through kind of migration schemes or related to kind of conflicts and, and other, other processes that kind of allow smallholders to take over lands of, of indigenous peoples. Um, so it's important to consider as well. Since rubber trees take so long to grow, I know the price of rubber is really volatile, which you mentioned. Supply can't really respond to changes in demand, so the price can have big swings, which I know is difficult on the farmers, but 
I imagine it would also play a role in the deforestation we're seeing if farmers or countries are saying demand for rubber is rising, let's get in the game. And then in four years, everyone cut down their forests and the price tanks. So do you see price volatility as something that worsens these deforestation and land issues, or do you think it would be an issue either way? Yeah, absolutely. And, and you've really identified a big part of the problem is these crop cycles, which are quite difficult to plan when it comes to rubber because of the long maturation of, of seven years before harvesting. I think it's also just worth putting this out there that um, speculation is also a really big part of volatility in the industry, financial speculation. It's, it's an area that I don't know a whole lot about, but I'm quite interested to learn more. Um, but it is, it is known to increase volatility of rubber prices. So it's, it's not just about the kind of supply and demand factors. Um, but you're right that uh, it certainly exacerbates the environmental pressures. Um, if rubber prices are high, there will always be pressures, of course, but that's just not the case in any kind of classic cash crop. Prices go up and down, but this volatility makes it worse because it affects planning and that you end up having these kinds of cycles, as you mentioned, of people clearing too much land and then more rubber is planted than is really needed globally. And then prices crash. And then sometimes people abandon their farms or switch to other crops. You mentioned that some of the governments in Southeast Asia are very heavily involved, which is an interesting dynamic since it is a lot of smallholder farms. And it seems that it's almost competitive between the countries who want to grow their share of the rubber industry. How does that heavy government involvement affect the industry? And do you think to fix these issues, it would require more involvement or less involvement, or I guess just different involvement, maybe? I think a government involvement or not non-involvement is not the issue, but more what you were mentioning at the end there, that it's about the type of involvement, um, so the role that they play. So the countries where the governments have played a role in supporting smallholders, such as by like helping to set up cooperative groups for the marketing and sale of latex, or setting up kind of open bidding markets or providing uh, technical expertise and, and low interest loans and stuff like that, that's been really helpful for smallholders and helping to ensure that smallholders dominate the industry. But in other countries, um, you see this a lot in Myanmar, Laos, and Cambodia, the government has given out large uh, concessions of land to companies. They promoted rubber amongst smallholders, but haven't really provided the support that they need. So it tilts the industry towards these large-scale plantation companies, and that's been problematic. To be honest, I had no idea until maybe a year ago that rubber even grows on trees, let alone all the issues facing it. And maybe it's just me, but I feel like the process of how to make rubber is way less commonly known in the United States than even other materials like metal or plastic or something. So obviously we can't all be experts, but what would your message be to people here or rather outside of Southeast Asia who don't know how rubber is made? What should we know about our car tires and spatulas and all that? Yeah, I think that's a, a great point. A lot of people didn't know, and I certainly didn't know before I started doing research on rubber. I think, you know, with any commodity, it's always just really important to have a firm understanding of where it comes from and how it's produced. I mean, not we'll never be able to know where everything we buy in the supermarket 
comes from exactly, um, but to have some general understanding of, of the industries, because there's a lot of complex and, and problematic social and environmental issues connected to them. So when it comes to rubber, I think it's also just worth knowing that, you know, natural rubber continues to play a really major role in the rubber industry, even though there's a lot of rubber that's produced by synthetic rubber. So I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from is because people associate rubber with synthetic, but actually a certain amount of rubber has to be natural because it has certain properties that synthetic rubber doesn't. So for example, um, tires on airplanes have to be made from natural rubber. Um, otherwise they won't be able to kind of withstand the heat and pressure of, of landing on the uh, tarmac. And also on top of that, it can have to do with the economics of it. So when oil prices are high, then producing synthetic rubber from oil um, becomes very expensive. So natural rubber becomes cheaper. And so it's just a really important part of the industry. And there are people involved in that. It's not just about uh, forest and land, um, but also people's livelihoods of those who have been displaced from lands to make way for rubber plantations um, or smallholders who are involved who are affected by prices going up and down. So I would just like you know people to be aware that the, the tire on their car or the rubber on the sole of their shoe or whatever it might be is as important of a consumer product to understand its, its origins of as the uh, palm oil in your shampoo or, or potato chips. Just because we don't eat it doesn't mean that it's not as important as these other commodities. And we should be aware of it because, you know, the industry is taking sustainability seriously, but they know that they have some degree of kind of buffer from consumers because consumers aren't as aware of the source of rubber as they are for things like palm oil or, or, or coffee or sugar. Yeah. And you mentioned there that this isn't necessarily to say don't buy rubber, but to learn where it comes from. And I think when you lay out the natural versus synthetic there, hearing that synthetic comes from oil and natural comes from trees, sounds like natural might be something worth fixing. So how do we do that? What would you say are the next steps to improve the sustainability of rubber? There needs to be a lot of work, not just to kind of improve sustainability in general across the sector, but to really find ways of, of preventing those problems and ideally kind of moving away from large scale plantations in general, because there's, there's not really much of a need for them as, as I see it. Um, and they create more problems than they solve. And actually, it's oftentimes been shown that a lot of crops are, are more efficiently grown by smallholders than in, in plantation form. I think, you know, kind of long-term planning is a really important part of the picture. Price volatility creates problems with that. And I think, you know, trying to improve or reduce volatility in the market um, is important. I don't study that aspect, so I don't really have solutions related to that. But I think it is a really important part of the picture that needs to be addressed. Dr. Kenny Lazard, thank you so much for joining us. Sure, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. This wraps up episode 69 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the episode by leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or joining our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. 
Clips today came from Hevia Connect, Rothamsted Research, Cleanwater 3, CNBC, and TEDx Talks. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Thank you.